Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in the oppressively hot Las Vegas. <laughs> On this week's episode of the podcast, reporter Michelle Rundells and I talk to the executive director of the state's Cannabis Compliance Board, which is the regulatory body here in Nevada that oversees the cannabis industry and which officially took control on July 1st. After that, intern Kristen Leonard and I talk about utilities and how the companies and consumers are being affected by the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. And at the end of the show, editor John Ralston and I talk movies and TV, and John tells us what he thought about the new movie Palm Springs. But first, I'm going to hand this over to Jacob to go over all things coronavirus this week. Our healthcare reporter and coronavirus expert Megan Messerly is off this week, so our weekly breakdown of the newest data and pandemic headlines is going to have to wait until she comes back. But we still want to make sure that you stay updated with the latest numbers. So, as of Friday morning on July 31st, more than 47,000 people in Nevada have tested positive for the virus, and 801 have died. Those numbers raise the cumulative positivity rate, that's the percent of all tests that come back positive, to 10.1%, while the daily rate on Thursday had increased slightly to 16 Hospitalizations, meanwhile, have continued to increase. Hospitalizations rose to 1,145 on Thursday, an increase of 35 over the previous day. As always, if you want more of our coronavirus coverage, you can head to our website, nevadaindependent.com, where we have a comprehensive coronavirus data dashboard. And if you want new numbers as soon as they arrive, you can follow Megan on Twitter, at Megan Messerly, where she tweets out new daily totals with added context about where those numbers are coming from and what they mean in the big picture. And now, back to the rest of our show. Hi, I'm Joey Lovato up here in Reno, joined today by reporter Michelle Rendells down in Carson City. And we're talking with Tyler Klimas, who is the head of the Cannabis Control Board, a regulatory board that oversees the marijuana industry here in Nevada, which officially took control on July 1st. So uh, welcome, Tyler. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Can you kind of just start by explaining the regulation for marijuana has kind of gone through a lot of iterations here in the state. This is the third iteration. It was first under Health and Human Services in the Department of Taxation, and now we're here at the Cannabis Control Board. Can you kind of, why has it switched so much and how did we get here? What you're seeing is, is what I consider just kind of the natural progression of the industry. And you're right, it started under the Department of Health and Human Services with medical, then recreational became legal in 2017. It moved over to the Department of Taxation. And really in 17, when recreational became legal, recreational sales, you just saw this industry take off. I've never seen an industry move as fast as this one does. And as it moved that fast, I think there was a, a, a recognition that we needed a standalone agency that can properly oversee the industry, an agency that can also move and pivot with the industry's growth. That's why the governor put forth the, the Cannabis Compliance Board last session. The legislature agreed and the governor signed it and established this board. Yeah, Tyler, and I think that's a great point you make um, about an industry, or a regulatory body dedicated to cannabis because it seems like it had really taken over at the Department of Taxation. And, and you could kind of hear in the voices at, the, at the, the legislative session that it was, you know, something they were sort of happy to, to maybe have off their plate so they could focus on the many other taxes that they have to collect in the state. 
Sure, and it makes sense, right? I mean, the industry started small. And again, this is kind of that natural progression. I think it's the appropriate progression. I also think as we see the revenue numbers come in, we're, we're, we're looking at a cannabis industry here that is a viable source of revenue for the state. So I think it's grown in its place as, as, as an industry that's going to contribute to the state budget and, and needs, to be, it needs to be regulated, but it, it, it needs to be recognized and, and overseen as an important part of, of the economy. I think the Cannabis Compliance Board helps to do that. Now, right out of the gate, we really saw a lot of activity from you guys in the last, it's been a month now. You know, we saw last week the largest fine uh, that's ever been levied on the, the legal industry handed down from the Cannabis Compliance Board. And that was for things like destroying video evidence. You know, there was some diversion going on. People were, were moving marijuana outside of the metric system, which is the seed to sale tracking system. You know, the biggest fine I can remember is something that was more in the line of 70000 And that was one of the things in the regulations was upping those fines. Why did you guys feel like it was necessary to really raise the level of the fines? Well, I think if you go back to the, the public policy of 8533, so the intent of the governor and the legislature in, in establishing this board, right there in the legislation, it's, asked, it's asking, it's, it's charging this board with, with strict regulation, implying that we need to be a little bit more strict in our regulatory capacity here. And you're right, in the proposed regulations that were just adopted last week at our inaugural meeting, uh, there was across the board increase to fines. But Michelle, back to, back to what you were talking about, public confidence and public trust also included in, in the bill. Um, but public confidence and public trust is, is such a major component of, of, of what we focus on. It has to exist for this industry to move forward. And so, you know, properly enforcing the rules and the regulations, not being lax, uh, but being strong and strict when needed, and then doing it in an open setting, which we did at the board meeting, publishing these materials. You saw the complaints that we issued. They were published in their entirety. That instills more public confidence and public trust in an industry that, let's be honest, came from, from the black market, right? But it is now legitimate, and we need to, we need to continue to work to keep it legitimate and, and have that public confidence that it is legitimate and it's safe. You know, and part of this started way back in 2019, I think it was May when, when that bill was signed, calling for more transparency in the licensing and just for the first time putting out the names of the people that have licenses. Now, I understand that you guys are working on on maybe a portal that I think it's run by Accela and, and it's going to provide more transparency into license transfers and things like that. Can you give us a status update on what, what's going on with that? Sure. Accela is this case management system that not only are licensees going to use to submit um, forms, you know, change of menus, transfers of interest, things like that. The Cannabis Compliance Board as regulators are going to use that as well, so we keep everything together and into the same system. But then it's also going to have a public-facing aspect where a member of the public can go on and file a complaint, or if they see something and they're concerned about it, they can file, uh, you know, send us an email, uh, let us know what they're seeing, and we're able to, to investigate what comes in through a seller. And one of the huge 
movements that's been going on, I would say in the past year or more, has been a, a, a lot of mergers, a lot of consolidations and buyouts in the industry. And that sort of came to a bit of a standstill in October when, you know, the news came out that there were folks from with ties to Eastern European business people that were trying to get licenses, trying to manipulate the system. And the governor put in a, a moratorium on license transfers. That was one of your guys' first moves at the, at the initial meeting was to lift that moratorium. What gives you guys confidence to be able to do that? And, and, and I mean, do you feel like we're at a point where we're not going to get infiltrated by bad actors at this point? Well, we're always going to look at who is trying to come into the industry and who is in the industry currently. With the regulations that were adopted last week, Regulation 5, which deals with licensing, if you go through that, you're going to see many examples of expanded capabilities of, of, of staff in the Cannabis Compliance Board now to properly vet and background check individuals. You know, before it was, it was as simple as show us you have 250000 in your bank account and submit your fingerprints, and that satisfied the background check. We're moving much more towards a suitability check. Michelle, what you're going to see now when you submit a, a transfer of interest or you want to change ownership or you want to sell or merge, our, investigation, uh, our investigators, which we've completely revamped the investigations division, but they're going to go out and they're going to sit down with you as a licensee. They're going to talk to you face to face. And that interaction to me is, is so critical in making that recommendation, which is what we'll do to the board. We have to, as staff, make a recommendation to the board on these actions. The board is the final arbiter. They will make the final decision. But to make a recommendation without sitting down with somebody, understanding what move they want to make, understanding their business processes, understanding their financial health of of them individually and of their business. Those are such key uh, components of making some kind of recommendation like that. Those are some of the changes you're gonna see now with the cannabis compliance. Yeah, and that sounds a lot like what goes on with gaming, which is the, the model really for the cannabis compliance board is there's, there's in-person interaction and, and a real forensic, it sounds like audit of people's finances. That's exactly right. And, and Michelle, I mean, we're not going to be able to fly to Macau next week and interview your old high school principal to see, you know, why they lent you money, right? Which is what gaming does and they do it so well. We're not there yet, but what we're doing now is we're, we're kind of putting those foundational pieces brick by brick and that's where we're going to go. That's where we want to be. That's how we, we reach status of the, the gold standard in cannabis oversight, which is the, the charge that Governor Sisolak gave us. And you bring up that point of kind of staffing and resources to do this kind of investigation. Uh, you know, a couple months ago, we wrote that there were still quite a few vacancies in the uh, marijuana regulatory world here in Nevada. Obviously, we've gone through a round of budget cuts in the special session. How is that affecting your cannabis compliance board staff? Are we seeing vacancies being filled? Are, were any of those vacant positions eliminated? What's the situation now? Well, per AB 533, we were able to hire 20 additional positions from a roughly 40-person team, which was the Marijuana Enforcement Division. During the budget cuts, I mean, it's shared sacrifice. There's 10 vacancies that are going to be placed on hold. So uh, our new positions were cut in half, at least for the, for the time being. That still leaves us with a net gain of, of 10. And so, you know, the day-to-day -day operations, the audits, and the inspections, I'm, I'm, I'm not concerned about us 
continue to perform those those core functions. And you said you do feel confident about the staffing levels, but I mean, you've got major marijuana companies and then that complaint that you guys released last week was evidence. You know, there's a lot to watch out for. There's, there's people that are, I mean, in that case, what, hundreds or thousands of plants that were out, out of the system and cameras off. I mean, there's just like a lot to, to monitor. You've got hundreds of, of licensees. Do you feel like you need more, I guess? Listen, the more resources you have, the better you're going to be. I mean, compare us to, to Colorado. I think they have around 150 staff members, right? So we know where we want to go and we're going to get there. We're just, we're just getting started here in July, but, you know, we've enjoyed very strong partnerships with, with local law enforcement. It's like we, we've expanded our enforcement capabilities. So using those relationships, there are other agencies out in the state that, that we can work with and expand our footprint. Another issue that really has come up in the past year has been the marijuana labs. Joey and I actually went to, to see how one of those works. You know, but that was, that was an issue of people inflating THC numbers and kind of gaming the system. And, and there was even concerns about this is maybe a the system has the wrong incentives. I mean, independent labs have to gain customers, so they don't want to to give their customers unfavorable ratings. What protections do you guys pass new regulations? What what protections are there to prevent that from happening going forward? Sure. Well, Regulation 11, which deals with testing facilities, we saw a number of enhancements in there, but we have a long way to go. If I could create my own lab inspection division within CCD. I would, and I hopefully I will one day because that's how big of an issue it is. They are the gatekeeper of the industry, these labs. And part of our charge, again, the public policy in AB 533 is, is protecting the public health and safety of Nevada. If, if Nevadans aren't confident and visitors to our state are not confident that they're going to go and get product that's safe, that's been tested, not only tested, but you know, accurately tested. If they can trust the results, if they can't do that, then we're not doing our job well. I'm really confident in our lab inspectors that we have here. I would put them up against any across the nation, and, and, and we work with our counterparts and see what others are doing. But again, we have a long way to go. What we do have at our disposal here, Michelle, is data, right? So, so in the regulations, you'll see that certificates of analysis, which is what a lab has to submit after they test a product. The regulations that, that, that the board adopted are gonna allow us to post those online. And, 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 and we're gonna do that, right? I want everybody to know, or if they have a question, that they can go. I want members of the public, I want members of the media to, to go and be able to access that. And then probably my final question is, uh, you know, the pandemic has, has just set in, just as you were really getting started on this project of transitioning the, <laughs> the regulation to the cannabis board, it's changed everything for everybody. Uh, but what are you hearing from you know, folks in the marijuana world, what do they need to, I guess, weather the challenge? And what are some things that have really uniquely hit this industry? COVID was, was tough on, on businesses, obviously, across the state. The cannabis industry was, was not immune to those, those challenges. I think the governor put some faith in the industry that they would operate appropriately when he kept them open. And we moved to delivery only, as, as you know, at the end of March. The industry responded. And, and as staff, as a CCB staff, we implemented that a, uh, a virtual vehicle inspection process. So we were able to approve vehicles very quickly. So we did what we could within the regulations to help the industry pivot their business models, which they absolutely did. 
The next iteration was curbside, which was not, a, it was not provided for in the regulations before COVID. We designed that process. And again, the cannabis industry pivoted their business model once again to curbside delivery. So they've shown resilience. It's unfortunate. I, I mean, this is my, my, my personal thoughts. It's unfortunate that they didn't and they don't have the same kind of access to, you know, PPP loans and some of the SBA offerings that other businesses do. I, I get it. I, I understand at the federal level why, but it is, it is unfortunate. I think we're going to see some licensees close their doors and, and, and leave this industry. And it's, it's unfortunate, but I think for the most part, they've remained in compliance. They've, they've done a good job pivoting their models. I think my staff has done a great job working with them on that. And, you know, if you look at sales, if you want to use that as a, as a factor to look at their health, you know, April, we took a huge hit. May, we, we, we started to come back. And June and July, Michelle, have been year over year, they've exceeded sales from last year. Transactions are obviously way down. So, so consumers are, are purchasing more product, but, but sales, are, sales are up. And I think that's a good sign for the health of the industry. Going back to what I said earlier, it's a good sign for the state. We're here. You know, for a couple of months, we were one of the few gains in town bringing in tax revenue. So our revenue streams, I expect them to be, and that's taxation's job to release those. And, but I expect them to, to potentially exceed last year. So, you know, looking at those metrics, they're in, they're in, they're in good shape. But yeah, it's been really tough for a lot of, uh, a lot of the licensees, especially your cultivation-only facilities who are not vertically integrated. Very, very, very difficult. Well, I think we'll probably leave it at that. There's so much going on in your uh, agency. Yeah. Look forward to seeing what else comes out of the Cannabis Compliance Board in coming weeks and months, and, and hopefully we can catch up again in the near future. So thank you so much for talking with us, Tyler. Absolutely. Michelle, Joey, anytime. Let us know what you need. You're listening to Indie Matters. I'm Jacob Solis. When the pandemic began and millions of people lost their jobs almost overnight, there was a wave of goodwill from utilities. They promised grace periods and payment pauses, all meant to keep the lights on and water running while lockdowns remained in place. But that was months ago. And now, with no end in sight to the coronavirus pandemic, a pair of reports out this month show that Nevada is among the states with the fewest protections from looming utility shutoffs. Nevada Independent intern Kristen Leonard has been following this story for us, and she joins me now. Kristen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, Kristen. So let's start at the beginning of all this. Considering everything that's happened over the last few months, can you tell me how did we get to where we are now? Yes. So with a lot of pandemic and lockdown related policies, this all starts back in March. Around March 15th, Governor Sislak is making some major announcements. Schools are shutting down, businesses are shutting down, and as a part of one of those announcements, he mentions that utility companies in the state um, have committed to maintaining all service regardless of a resident's ability to pay. Mm -hmm. So the Public Utilities Commission, which is in charge of state-regulated utilities, and the governor have been working to do is making agreements with all utility providers in the state that they will not shut off service. They're not going to shut off electricity, water, any other essential services they provide, even if people can't pay. Because with the business shutdown, there's this understanding that people are going to be unemployed. People are also going to be home a lot more. So paychecks are going to be reduced and utility bills are going to be higher than normal. And that's going to lead to a lot of people losing service unless there can be an agreement that you're not going to shut off 
essential things while people are locked at home. And this same thing is happening throughout the country. Different states are working with their utility companies, putting different agreements and policies in place to stop this. Some states go with a full legal moratorium. Any state regulated utility company then legally won't be able to shut off policies. Some states do closer to what Nevada did, which is just making an agreement with all those utility companies. The problem with this comes from how long lockdown has extended. All of these orders are temporary. So these utility companies are saying for the next 30 days or the next 45 days, we're not going to shut off service. And so then as the months continue, as lockdown extends, certainly longer than these companies expected it to, they now have a decision to face. Are we going to continue this suspension or are we going to start shutting off people's power? Are we gonna start shutting off people's water again? And so these decisions are complicated for these companies, especially smaller companies, because they are losing revenue. They're providing these services without receiving payment for them for many people. And while major providers in the state and in the country can do that, no problem, smaller providers may not have the money to continue providing these services without payment if a significant part of the public isn't paying. And so then throughout the country, all of these agreements that in March were keeping pretty much everyone connected are now ending at different points. So depending on where you are in the state, where you are in the country, who your provider is, you may or may not be connected at this point in July. And so that's where these two reports come in. Okay, so let's talk about those two reports. One of them came out of a Senate subcommittee. Can you tell me about that and, and what it said? Yes. So the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee released their report initially in April, looking at different policies um, in every single state regarding utilities. And so this most recent study is an update on that April study that kind of goes into, you know, any of those states that had expiration dates set to, to reconsider where all the policies stand. And that report classifies Nevada as being one of 22 states that provides partial protections for people. And that partial protections come, and that partial protections classifier comes from the agreement that the governor and that the Public Utilities Commission made with their state regulated providers to stop people from being shut off. Now, the reason we're not in the top category is one, because it was not a legal moratorium. This was more of a voluntary agreement that these companies made. States that are in the highest category that have the most protections are states that legally mandated that their utility companies cannot shut off power or water for people. Additionally, our Public Utilities Commission can only regulate certain utilities in the state. So that is our state regulated utilities. Now in Nevada, for water specifically, 97% of people get their water from municipal utilities. So it's at a local or city level. You might get your water from the city of Boulder City or the city of Elko. And in that situation, the Public Utilities Commission doesn't have control over those companies. So any agreements that they make are more suggestions to municipal utilities because they're not subject to the same level of control. And then there was the other report that was released by the Center for Biological Diversity. Uh, that was a bit more damning, and it listed Nevada among the states with the fewest protections for utility customers. What did they find? The Center for Biological Diversity report shows Nevada as being one of many states that doesn't have any sort of moratorium in place. 
So the difference between the report released by the Center for Biological Diversity and the Senate report comes from the difference between that legal moratorium and simply an agreement. Because we don't have a moratorium in place, essentially the decision to suspend shutdowns is left up to individual utility companies. And that means that there's not equal protection throughout the state for every single citizen. Nevada can only be considered higher on that list by the center's um, report standards if there's that equal protection for citizens throughout the state. So as many of these policies have continued, there have been varying expiration dates. Some of them have already passed. City of Elko um, has reinstated shutdowns for water and electricity. Some like NV Energy are approaching. NV Energy in September is going to start reinstating shutdowns unless a customer has elected to be put on a payment plan. And so when individual companies are in charge of making these decisions, it means one, that there's not equal protection, two, that there are generally less protections for people who are getting their utilities from smaller companies who don't have the money to continue. So what the center is really pushing for is a national moratorium on utility shutdowns, which in addition to preventing companies from shutting off people's utilities, would also require that those companies work with people who have accrued payments so that when that shutdown policy eventually ends, they aren't forced to pay all of that, all of those backed up payments all at once or then be shut off. So it would essentially require more things than our state policy, which is mostly an agreement. Okay. So I guess let's end with that political angle or the regulatory angle, I should say. So what have state regulators said about this? And what, if anything, might happen on either the state or federal level when it comes to protecting these utility customers? So state regulators with the Public Utilities Commission have noted that none of their state regulated utilities have ended their shutdown policies. Any utility company that has resumed shutdowns is a municipal utility or an otherwise unregulated utility. However, like I said about NV Energy, a lot of those companies do have expiration dates that are approaching. So just because as of July 30th, they haven't started shutting anyone down doesn't mean that in the coming months they're not going to resume that practice. So currently what the Public Utilities Commission is doing, the commission itself is helping them track their lost revenue so that they're incentivized to work directly with the state in order to keep providing services for Nevadans. Okay. And then the second part of that, which is, I mean, where do we go from here? What kind of additional protections are the state or, or federal authorities going to put in place? Or what protections outside of this agreement exist? So in Nevada, we do have some protections already in place, specifically for electricity services. Companies cannot shut down electricity services on weekends, on a holiday, or when the state hits a certain temperature. If it is below 15 degrees or above 105 degrees, electricity providers cannot shut off utilities because people have to have access to heating or to air conditioning in those situations. Beyond that, some national policies that the Senate is looking at would include, one, that national moratorium, making it so that utility companies cannot um, shut off service, and two, providing financial assistance directly to customers who need it in order for them to be able to pay their utility bills and keep their households connected. Why the Senate finds this so important is because 
electricity services and water services are not only essential in places where, you know, it is extremely hot and you need your air conditioning in places like Vegas just in everyday life, but in a pandemic specifically, because access to water, the ability to wash your hands, the ability to wash services is essential for preventing the spread of the virus and keeping you and your household safe. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Kristen Leonard is an intern for the Nevada Independent, and she has been following this story for us. Kristen, thanks so much for joining me. All right, so we are at the last segment of the podcast, and I am once again your host, Joey Lovato, and I am joined by our fearless editor, John Ralston. John, how's it going? Hi, Joey. And we are doing our, our favorite segment, the, the one where we get to talk about movies. We don't get to do it a ton, but there are a lot of things to watch, even though there's not a lot of new stuff coming out. Um, so we're going to kind of talk about some stuff that we've been watching. And John, one new movie that has come out is uh, Palm Springs, and you watched that. Yeah, Palm Springs, it, it's been out for a few weeks now. I think it's on Hulu. And it, I had heard some good things about it, actually. I think I saw a couple people on Twitter talking about it, and a reviewer I really respect by the name of Sonny Bunch, who I think may be the best movie reviewer in the country. And so I decided to check it out. And I, I have to tell you, it was just a, a totally delightful rom-com. You know, a lot of rom-coms, you know, try to be funny or they're too cute for words. But this was a totally different take that was uh, unexpected. Joey, it was like, you, know, you always know the format. It's boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back at the end. This is a very different twist on that. Uh, and it has a science fiction element to it that I don't want to ruin for, 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 for everybody. But it's Andy Samberg, who people know from uh, Saturday Night Live. And he's, he's really, really good in it. And it's, it also has a great supporting role for J.K. Simmons, who is good in everything that he has ever been in. So it's just a really fun, unexpected movie. Yeah. And it's, I I don't think it's spoiling too much because I think it's in the trailer to say that there's kind of a um, Groundhog Day element to the movie. Yeah. It's essentially the science fiction aspect that I mentioned. And you're right, it's in the trailer. So I guess I can talk about it. It, it. It's about a guy who is stuck in the same day after going through this, you know, kind of mystical, magical tunnel. And he is with, with a woman who uh, he doesn't realize is going to go through it. And then she's very, very upset, of course, to realize that she's stuck in this and all the creative things that happen. And of course, she's very mad at him at the beginning. And guess what happens by the end? No spoiler alert <laughs> uh, here. But there, 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 there's, some, there's, some, there's some great sidelines, too, including which. J.K. Simmons. It's just, it's very, very clever. And and it's actually quite endearing, Joey. We give it a thumbs up. All right. The indie gives it a thumbs up. I have not seen it yet, but I will definitely. It's been on my list. Have you been watching anything else? Any other good TV or, or, or movies? Let me tell you about something. Maybe you've seen this. Joey and I have not talked about this before the podcast, <laughs> but I looked at the Emmy nominations and I saw that Watchmen got like by far the most, like 26 of them. I think I watched the first episode and then forgot to go back to it. Have you seen it? I have not. I have been told by all of my friends to watch it. I want, yeah. I want to watch it. I, I, I have started and stopped the comic maybe four times in my life. And I feel like I would get more out of it if I finished the comic book, even though I know it is not necessarily like one-to-one related to the comic book. So I, I'm actually reading it again about a third of the way through it, but I'm also reading like three other books right now. So once I finish Blood Meridian, which has been a slog, a good slog, but a slog, I will 
finish uh, Watchmen and then and then hopefully watch the show. But you're you're watching something too right now that you really like. That uh, yeah, I'm. About that. Um, it sounds interesting. It's called Generation Kill. It's on uh, HBO and it came out in like 2007. I'd never heard of it before. And it's written by the people that did uh, The Wire and it's a true story. It's it, the Iraq War and kind of told from the perspective of this one unit and a Rolling Stones reporter that's embedded with them. And kind of, it looks a lot at kind of leadership problems in the Iraq War and what happened. And like I said, it's a true story or it's an adapted true story. So I'm, it's a little over dramatized, I'm sure. But it reminds me of Band of Brothers or, or any of those, if you've seen, or like the Pacific, but modern. So I, I really enjoy it. And it's really well done, really well acted. Alexander Skarsgård is the main character. So, yeah. yeah, he's great. He, I, I, I didn't know he was in it, but you had me at The Wire. Uh, the Wire is yeah. one of the best things ever on TV. Can I mention one more movie? I just remembered that I had seen even more recently. Uh, yes. Yeah. Boy, this is how my mind is going. Don't tell me <laughs> outside the indie. Uh, this is just between you and me, right? Everything you're not. Of course, actually, no one else will uh, hear this. That's what I thought. Uh, the Old Guard, which is uh, a, a uh, new uh, movie on Netflix. I don't know if you've heard about this uh, with uh, Charlize Theron as the leader of, of, of a group of immortals. It's gotten pretty good reviews and I, I quite enjoyed it. But I will warn people that it is incredibly violent. I mean, really, really violent because they keep getting killed and they come back uh, and they get <laughs> killed in very violent ways. But it's, it's, it's got more depth to it than just an action movie. And she has really become a, a, a pretty good actress, I think. And so she's very good in the, in, in the lead here. It's definitely worth seeing. Well, I think that's all of the visual media that we've been consuming recently. I've mainly been reading and playing video games on my uh, my limited downtime. So I'm sure you have too, right, John? <laughs> uh, I don't have any downtime at all. I have to run the show and let you people have downtime. <laughs> That's right. Well, we appreciate it. Well, thanks for, thanks for chatting with me, John. You got it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Tyler Klimas, Michelle Rundells, Kristen Leonard, and John Ralston for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we're doing, you can email us at joey at com or jacob at com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies. You can find more of their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.